to mention uh, at the outset that uh, this evening will be the uh, final shear of the current series um, and we will pick up again uh, after the summer break on Monday the 29th of August which is the 2nd of Elul. Of course uh, much can happen between now and then but uh, that is our uh, schedule. <clears throat> so we finally uh, are all unified, the Jewish Torah reading world. Um, we have Parshas Masay, Chutzlaret has uh, Matos and Masay. If I may paraphrase the British parliamentarian of yesteryear, Chutzlaret is no longer an island. So we're all uh, reading uh, Parshas Masay, and uh, the, the Parsha begins, of course with the Masa'os, those 42 journeys or journeyings of B'nai Yisrael. And I wanted to mention, before we take a look at uh, one posuk in particular, there is a matter of minhag. And I would not be presumptuous uh, enough to say that it is a universal minhag. I have not visited uh, enough shuls around uh, Parshas Maseh, but I do believe it is a widespread minhag. And that is that when it comes to the reading of the Masa'os, there's a certain tune that is uh, often employed by the Balkari. It's not the standard tune. Of course, we have the Ta'ami HaMikra, we have the Trop, which generally uh, is the way that we read. But when it comes to these, Vayisu from here, Vayachanu here, it, it, it's, it's said in a kind of a sing-song way. And in fact, uh, again, <coughs> from the places that I've seen and the places that, I, that I've heard of, the, the tune is actually very similar, when you think about it, to the Az Yashir tune. Uh, and the question is, what's behind this? So one may have thought you know, balabatishly that there's 42 short psukim and it's just really a way of presenting them in a somewhat uh, pleasant or easy to hear sing-song type of way. But it happens to be that uh, there is a good deal more to it than that. <coughs> there is a halacha, in fact. I, uh, I, I would say it, it could be expressed as, as a halacha. And it's learned from the bringing up of the Aron to be installed in Yerushalayim, that when then happened, it was accompanied by song. And that's a very important thing to, to be aware of. When the Aron moves, it's accompanied by song, by Shira. The Torah itself is described as a Shira. And learning Torah is a Shira-type experience, but as it moves, it's accompanied by song. And that's when it was brought from the Plishtim to Yerushalayim, Vayasharna, there was Shira there. And this is also the source of, again, the widespread custom that when the Sefer Torah is brought out and when the Sefer Torah is put back into the Oron, the congregation sings. Vayahibin Sawah Aaron. Whatever it may be. Uh, and again, we, one may have been inclined to, to see this as the, the congregation, if they've already, they're already there and they've been there for a while, so uh, it's a good opportunity for, for a bit of a sing-song. But 
It's more than that. It's accompanying the Sefer Torah. In our experience, when we take the Sefer Torah out, we call that Vayihibin Soa Ha'aron. It's like the Aron travels. And because when the Aron would travel, it would be accompanied by song, it is correct when taking out the Sefer Torah for the congregation to be singing. And likewise, Uvenu Yomar. We say the Posuk when we put the Sefer Torah back, when the... Uh, the, the, the Aaron would rest, would be brought to rest, and again, we sing in accompaniment. That is a very uh, important and special thing that the Kehillah do. I know that uh, depending on, again, certain shuls that you come uh, here in Eretz Yisrael, they're a little bit, uh, I would say, sparing with, uh, with the singing. Uh, there's only the only time I ever miss the good old times in the, the United Synagogue in London is 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 when it comes to these uh, types of times where the Sefer Torah is on the bimah before you realize what's happened, because uh, back in the day there would be a whole choral enterprise. But in any case, the the, the basis for that is really in this uh, idea, and therefore, one of the uh, great scholars of, uh, of recent times, Rav Yona Merzbach, was his name. Uh, he was originally a Rav in Germany, in uh, Darmstadt, I believe, and then he became one of the Rosh Hashivas of Kultura. The Yeshiva of Kultura was originally uh, run by uh, German rabbis and catering for, for also German uh, Bachrim. Uh, it expanded since then, uh, certainly once they brought in Rup Shlomo Zalman Orbach as the Rosh Hashiva, who, although he was a born and bred Yerushalmi, they actually saw as a, as a kindred spirit uh, in many ways, just his, his, uh, his precision and his uh, organization, etc. and so forth. So Rav Yonah Merzbach, <coughs> so he explains that once we understand that if the, when the Aron travels, it's accompanied by song, so the Masa'os of Bnei Yisrael, which is dedicated, these 50 psukim, which are dedicated to the, four, containing the 42 journeys of Bnei Yisrael, if they journeyed, the Aron journeyed. And when the Aron journeys, the people sing. And that is why the tune which describes these psukim is the tune for us, Yashir. It's a tune of Shira to accompany the, the Aron as it, as it went with the Jewish people. So that's a very interesting matter of Minhag. And again, one can never underestimate uh, Minhagim. Of course, Minhagim come in all shapes and sizes, but they don't all come from the same place or are of the same uh, authenticity. Uh, but one can never, uh, you never know what's behind the Minhag. And sometimes it's a, a great person gives you a, a bit of insight. So, having discussed the Masaos Eile uh, Masay generally, let's take a look at an interesting point with one of the uh, Psukim. It's really in the beginning, uh, and that is Pasuk Gimel. Periklamid Gimel, Pasuk Gimel. Vayisu me Ramses, Bachodesh Harishon. They traveled from Ramses in the first month, of which, of course, is Nisan, Bachamisha Asayom Lachodesh Harishon, on the 15th of that month. Mimachras Pesach from the morrow of the Pesach, Yatsu B'nei Yisrael B'yad Ramah, they left with a high hand, that is to say, in good spirits, with pride, Yatsu B'nei Yisrael Le'enei Kol Mitzrayim, in full vision of, of the Egyptians. Now, this Pasuk doesn't seem to be telling us anything that we don't already know, which is possible, because Masse is a recap. We've had a much more detailed description of the Jewish people leaving Mitzrayim in Parshas Bo. So if it's condensed and there isn't necessarily news here, uh, that's a possibility. But it happens to be that our Pasuk 
does contain news. It does contain something about us leaving Mitzrayim which was not fully explicated in Parshas Bo when we actually left. And what is the background to this? There is a concept uh, in the way that we uh, daven. It's called smichas geula litfila. It's called joining geula with tefillah, redemption with prayer. And practically what that means is joining the bracha of Ga'al Yisrael, which is just before Shemana Yisrael, joining that into Shemana Yisrael. And that is something that we do in the morning and in the evening. <coughs> in the evening, the connection is a little looser because there's actually another bracha, Hashkibenu, and then Kaddish, and then possibly other things, uh, depending on uh, one's minhag. In the morning, the connection is very tight. That is to say, straight from Ga'al Yisrael to Hashem Svasai Tiftach. Interrupting or waiting for nothing. Um, and in fact, <coughs> the, the Ashkenazi Minhag is even not to say Amen to the blessing of Ga'al Yisrael. If the, if the Chazan would say Ga'al Yisrael, even not to say Amen. That's how uh, tight the connection is between Arka al Yisrael and Hashem Svatay Tiftach in the beginning of Shemana Yisrael. You don't even interrupt for Amen. Interestingly, this itself gave rise to a certain practice that some people feel is not necessarily correct. Namely, what does the Chazan do when he says uh, Ga'al Yisrael? So there are certain communities where the practice of the Chazan is that he actually says the words Ga'al Yisrael quietly, sotavoche, so that no one can hear. Why should he say them so that no one could hear? Because he doesn't want to put people in the uh, quandary or in the uncomfortable position of having to say amen to his bracha. And therefore, he says the bracha in a way that no one can hear, and everyone's way is clear. That is a something, if you ever wondered why the chazan, if you ever heard the chazan say Ga'al Yisrael uh, quietly, it's not that he's lapsed into silence uh, momentarily. That's the reason why he's doing it, so that people shouldn't hear his bracha to say Amen, which would lead them to uh, issues between their Ga'al Yisrael and their prayer. But some Poskim felt that this was not correct. And foremost amongst them, as far as I know, was the great Rav Yosef Eliyahu Henkin, who was the preeminent posek. Uh, in uh, America for much of the uh, 20th century. Late, a little bit later, he was joined by Rav Moshe Feinstein, who, of course, uh, needs to know introduction. But Rav Henkin uh, was, was um, primary, primary POSIC there in, uh, in the United States. <coughs> and we have some of his writings. And he maintains that this practice is not correct. And this, the reason why is because it's the Chazan's job to say the beginning and at least the beginning and end of every bracha out loud. He's the chazan. And, 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 and in the old days, he would say everything out loud to be mozi people. Now these people have sidurim. But he's there for a reason, and part of what the job of being a, the chazan is to say the end of the beginning and end of each bracha out loud. And Ga'al Yisrael is no exception. Now it's true that if People hear him say Ga'al Yisrael, that may lead them to issues, should they say Amen, says Rav Henkin, that's their problem. They need to organize themselves. They need to either have started Hashem Svasai Tiftach, 
at that time or still be in Gal Yisrael, they need to, to arrange themselves. But, but they can't lead him not to do his job as the Chazan. And he felt quite strongly about this. And Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach used to quote uh, Rav Henkin by name uh, in, in this regard. So either way, it's hard to say uh, that's obviously his very strongly held opinion. Hard to say that the other practice is incorrect. But either way, that is the world of joining Gaal Yisrael with prayer. Why are we speaking about this in Parshas Masse? Because it happens to be that one of the psukim in our Parsha is very much in the fray of that topic. As we mentioned before, we, we talk about Geula before davening twice every day, in the morning and in the evening. Why? So the Gemara explains, because there were aspects of leaving Mitzrayim that took place in the morning and the evening, respectively. Firstly, in the evening, we received permission to leave. We, were, we officially attained our liberty. We didn't actually leave until the next morning. So liberty, we got at the nighttime. The next day, in the daytime, in the morning, is when we actually left and therefore reflecting those two points within our Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, we, we talk about Geula leading into Tefillah respectively in the morning and the evening. What are the sources? How do we know that we receive permission to leave in the evening and that we actually left in the day? Well, the Torah itself refers to the, to the Exodus as taking place at night. That's in Parshas Re'eh, one of the summer Parshas. Farm Perikted Zion Pasuk Aleph, which states explicitly, Hashem took you out of Mitzrayim, Laila, at night. Now we know that we didn't actually leave at night, but clearly something significant enough happened at night, and that is that we had we were at leave to leave. We had permission to leave. But what about the second idea? That we actually left physically or geographically, we left in the morning. Where do we see that? says the Gemara, as it says, Mimacharas ha-Pesach, Yatsu b'nei Yisrael, etc., and so forth, are Pasuk. And this now is very interesting, because it turns out that the source of the idea, and I don't think anyone ever questions this idea, but the source of the idea that we left in the daytime, the day following uh, Pesach night, is actually in Parshas Masseh. That's the postage that's quoted by the Gemara. But the question, of course, is why? Why go to Masay to tell us a detail about Yitzhak Mitzrayim? Uh, Parsha's bow is an entire Parsha dedicated to us leaving Mitzrayim. Is there no Pasuk there which actually says that we left in the daytime? And if there is, so to paraphrase, How come we're bringing our proof all the way from the tail end of Chumash Bamidbar? Let it come from the Parsha itself. Is there no such Pasuk which says explicitly that we left in the daytime? And the answer, amazingly, is no. There isn't. And that's a bit surprising. Especially because we might feel that there is such a verse. Specifically, the Pasuk says in Parshas Bo, in the end of Perik Yudbeis, Pasuk Mem Aleph, actually it's not the very end, Perik Yudbeis, 
doesn't really end, it seems. But Pasuk Mem Aleph, Vayihi Miket Shloshim Shana, Vayihi Be'etzem Hayom Hazeh, Yatsu Kotsivers Hashem Eret Mitzrayim. The Jewish people are described as leaving Mitzrayim Be'etzem Hayom Hazeh. Now, doesn't Be'etzem Hayom Hazeh mean in the middle of the day or in the, the... But it happens to be, although we normally translate it that way, does not necessarily mean that we left in the middle of the day. can sometimes mean that very day, but it doesn't necessarily denote the day versus the night. And we see this from elsewhere in the Torah. The Torah commands us to fast on Yom Kippur on that very day. That's the whole day, meaning day and night, not just the daytime. We're told to declare Shavuos as a Yom Tov in Parshas Emor, not just during the daytime, from the very beginning. So does not necessarily have the connotation of daytime versus nighttime. It just designates a very specific day, but we don't know, day or night. And in fact, to make matters a little bit more perplexing, Pasuk Mem Aleph there in Shmos Yud Beis, says we left The very next Pasuk, Pasuk Membeis, says famous words, Lel Shimurim Hu Lashem. This was a night that Hashem had been waiting for. So the verse describes us leaving and then is followed with a verse which talks about Lel Shimurim. So if anything, context makes it sound like we left at night. Now we might know that that's not true, but there is nowhere in all of Parshas Bo where it actually states explicitly that we left in the day. And that is why the Gemara brings the proof from Parshas Masse. The only proof is from our Parsha, which says that we left Mimachras HaPesach. It's still the 15th, but it's the morrow of the Pesach because it's the next day. So that's very interesting. And we see how carefully the, 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 the Gemara and after the Gemara, the Mepharshim, look at each Pesach. Sometimes we make assumptions. We, we assume that the Pesach is saying something that it isn't necessarily saying. It needs to meet a certain standard in order to be considered explicit. It turns out that if, if you wish to know where in the Torah does it say that we actually left in the daytime, the answer is in Parshas Maseh. And that's explicit now. In full view of the Egyptians. But now the follow-up question is, okay, we've established that um, the Pasuk doesn't explicate this in Bo, but only here. But now the question is, but why? <laughs> why does it only say it here? Why does it not say it there? And Rebleib Minsberg that's all, explains that this is the difference between the two Parshas. Parshas Bo is about our freedom from Mitzrayim. The emphasis is on liberty. It actually doesn't necessarily even make a difference when we physically left Mitzrayim. It's the, it, doesn't, it doesn't change when the actual Cherus took place. Parshas Masay, on the other hand, is about the journeys. If the, if the topic at hand is the journeyings, so then the timing of the journey is also uh, 
something of relevance there. And that is, that is responsible for the unusual fact that uh, the Pasuk only talks about it uh, in Parshas Masay, us leaving in the day, not in Parshas Bo. And interestingly, if we, if we look again a little closer at Pasuk Gimel, we'll find something else that was never said in, Parsh, in, in Chumash Shemos. Namely, when we left Mitzrayim, we left Biyad Ramah. We left in this very triumphant and exultant way. Was that ever said in Chumash Shemos? Not exactly. Interestingly, the Pasuk does say that the Jewish people were Biyad Ramah, but that's in Parshas Beshalach, when we'd already left and Paro chased after us. Then it states at that later stage that we were leaving Biyad Ramah. But actually leaving Mitzrayim from the very outset, Biyad Ramah, is only said in Parshas Masay. So uh, it's very interesting to... Uh, here we are in Psukim that we're, we're relaxing into the notion that they are purely technical in nature, but actually they can give us uh, certain um, information about Etzias Mitzrayim itself that we didn't otherwise have. So moving from, if I may say, from Masse, moving on from there to a section later in the Parsha, uh, let's talk for a moment about the Are Miklot about the, the cities of refuge, which are discussed in Perik Lamed Hay. Perik Lamed Hay. And the psukim that we wish to take a spe- specific uh, look at is psukim Yud Gimel and Yud Dalet. What are the Ari Miklat, the cities of refuge? As we know, they are there for someone who, chas v'chalila, accidentally, unintentionally uh, kills someone. So he's not to be put to death because it was unintentional, but he can't just carry on with life as normal. And therefore, uh, the Torah gives him these, these cities that he needs to go to. How many cities were there in total? Pasuk Yud Gimel of Perik Lamate. Ve'he'arim asher titnu. The cities that you should provide to, for, to give refuge is shesh are miklat tiyena lachem. There should be six in total. Okay. And where are these six? Says Pasuk Yudalet. Eis shalosh arim titnu me'ever layardain. So three of these six should be on the one side of the yardin, that is the east side. Ve'eis shalosh arim titnu be'eretz kanan. And the other three shall be in Eretz Canaan proper, Aremiklat Tihiyana. So the division of these six cities is three on the east side, three on the west side. And as we can appreciate, and as the Gemara raises the question, that seems to be uh, an unequal distribution of Aremiklat for a simple reason. On the east side of the Yardin, you only have two and a half tribes. You have, as we, as we discussed at length, as the Parsha describes at length, in, in Matos, you have Reuven, you have Gad, and half of Manasseh. So two and a half of the 12 are on the east side, which leaves you with nine and a half of the 12 on the west side, and yet the cities of refuge are divided equally. Why is it that those two and a half on the east side also require an equal amount of Are Miklat? That's a question that the Gemara raises, and uh, even Rashi talks about it, which is interesting, uh, because it's not necessarily, one might have thought, a a pshat question. The the meaning of the words is quite clear. But even Rashi gets involved in the question as why. Why do we have the um, three for the two and a half tribes? That's a lot of cities. That's more cities than there are tribes. 
And Rashi says, quoting the Gemara, <coughs> famous words in the Gemara, Begilad Shchiche Rotzchim. In Gilad, which is the east side of the Yarden, there's a lot of killers there. Killers are prevalent in Gilad. And it even brings a posuk to that effect. And that's very interesting that you have a certain place and that place is associated with killing. I mean, nowadays it's not really hard to uh, believe, but uh, we're talking about times when it's populated by, by two and a half tribes. And we were saying there's, some, there's a quality of that place and there's more killers there. And, and therefore they need more Ari Miklat. That's the Gemara's question, and that is his answer. Why so many cities for so few tribes? The answer is because there's a lot of killers there. And Mepharshim raised a simple question. The Ir Miklat is only there for someone who kills by accident. The killers that the, that the Pasuk is talking about are not people who kill by accident. They're people who kill on purpose. And the Ir Miklat is not for them. So how can the fact that there's a lot of killers there make a difference or make a requirement for more Ari Mikla? That's an interesting uh, Shaila. And the Ramban asks his question. <laughs> and his answer is equally interesting. And there is more than one answer, each one very interesting in its own way. But the Ramban says that uh, if a killer knows what he's doing, he doesn't want to be killed for killing. And therefore, with a bit of forethought, he will arrange for an accident to take place. There's a lot of, ac- a lot, a lot of non-practicing accidents, or more correctly, practicing non-accidents that uh, have the guise of an accident. You'll, you'll have a lot of, of, of people randomly falling off places that they, that they otherwise wouldn't because someone pushed them, and, and, uh, it's, and, but it was an accident. And therefore, because, because there's so many, the whole bracket called uh, accidental killing uh, is oversubscribed. And it's hard to tell the genuine unintentional killers from, from, the, uh, from the people who staged these accidents. Therefore, you need to have more Ari Miklat available. That's the very interesting answer of Ramban. One could have said, and again, it's, uh, one can ponder these details that if if they're that organized to make it look like an accident why not organize it to make sure that no one sees them and, and then they won't need to go to the Irmikla in the first place but um, either way maybe even 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 organization has its limits I don't know the Gur Aryeh the Maharal in his Perush Gur Aryeh on Rashi he says something quite different he says that if the question is all the killers, there's more killers on purpose, but, but the ear miklat is only for accident. Says the, says the Gurarya, yes. But in a place like that, more actual accidents will happen. That is to say, real accidents. But what does that mean? We, we need to uh, appreciate, and of course it makes perfect sense once we uh, look at it in this way, that it's, it's the halacha. The type of accident that would require the killer to go to the city of refuge, it's not entirely beyond his control. It's a, there's an element of negligence there. If indeed the, what took place was completely beyond his control, he is exempt from Ir Mikla. That's called onus. Onus, force majeure, beyond his control. But there's an element of, of negligence. If, if he was a little more careful... He would, uh, this wouldn't have happened. It doesn't mean he did it on purpose. But that's the type of thing that we're talking about. Says Maral. 
in a place that's full of killers, so no one cares about anyone else. They, they, they'd kill them on purpose if, they, if only provoked enough. And even someone that they wouldn't kill on purpose, but by definition, the atmosphere is one, where, whereby the other person's life doesn't mean anything. And, and that the way that translates into practicality is there are certain precautions that, are, that people will not take because they don't value the other person's life and therefore it's, it's meaningless to them that, that they could cause an accident. And therefore there could be a profusion of actual negligence, not intentional. And that's why you need more Ari Miklant. And it's a very profound idea in an atmosphere where, where there's so much violence, so then certainly there's no consideration for someone else, and a lot of actual negligence really will happen. What's very interesting is, where do they go? They go to these cities of, of refuge. And who lives in these cities? Levium. These are six of the 48 cities of the Levium. What's the, what's the message here? So I recall uh, quite vividly, although it's going back a while, back to my uh, school years. Uh, we once uh, were honored with a visit of Rav Goldwicht, who was the Rosh Hashiva of, um, of Karen Biyadne. This is Rav Haim Yaakov uh, Goldwicht, he came to visit. By my good fortune, I happened uh, to be in school that day. And I recall that uh, he, he gave us a shir, and he spoke about this. And he said that if the problem, wh wh wherever you are, if the problem that could lead to an accidental killing, Rahman al-Islam, is, is less than full regard for, for what life is about, less than full value for life. So where, is the, where does the rehabilitation come? It comes from, from being moved to the city of Levium. The Levium are people who are involved in elevated pursuits. They're teachers of Torah. They're involved in Avodah. They're, they're quality people. Not that others aren't, but this is the atmosphere. It's almost like the, the anti-atmosphere. Of, of a place where life is cheap, in a city of Levium, life is, is precious, life is valuable. And that's part of the education that he needs to absorb, so by the time he leaves, he leaves with, with perhaps a new value of, of life itself. That, that was his message at the time, I remember it made a big impact, has stayed throughout the years. So this is the approach of the Gorarie, that um, if people will kill, accidents, real accidents will happen to a much greater degree. I must say that uh, a very different, the third and final for our discussion, answer to the question. Again, to be clear, the question is, uh, we say that we need more Ari Miklat because uh, there's more killers, but they kill on purpose. Ari Miklat is for accidents. So how, does, how, does, how do these two things connect? And a very different, as I say, uh, answer to this question comes from one of the later Mepharshim, um, that is Rabbi Yitzchak of Velozhin. Rabbi Yitzhak of Velazhin was the son of Reb Chaim, the son and successor of Reb Chaim of Velazhin, as Rav and Rosh Hashiva of Velazhin. And uh, we don't have a lot in writing from him, but his comments uh, were collected into a volume called Pekadosh. And uh, his son-in-law, actually, the Natsiv, uh, quotes him from time to time. And, and uh, so we have uh, certain comments from there. <clears throat> Says Rabbi Yitzhak of Velazhin. As we know, if a person goes to an ear miklat, so he needs to stay there. And if he leaves, 
So then he runs the risk of being killed by someone called the Goal Hadam, the, the, the blood relative who's, who's uh, next of kin, shall we say. And that itself is a very interesting institution. You have this, uh, this blood relative and this person killed by accident. If he's in the Irmiklat, there's nothing you can do. But if he steps out, you have license to kill him. And in fact, there's even a machlokus in the Gemara. Do you have a license to kill him? Is it, is it a mitzvah to kill him? I mean, it's really, it's a whole... Uh, and this is now the balance of this, he, he's safe in the Ir Miklat, he's very much at risk outside, and that's also, he should, he should learn to value his own life, and uh, this is part of the penalty that, that he, he has to stay there on pain of death. That's really what it means. That's the balance. Now, the reason why it's a balance is because it happens to be if the Goal Adam will catch up with him before he gets to the Ir Miklat, then uh, he can already kill him. So it's, and that's why uh, you want to make sure that there's an Ir Miklat at hand. Okay. Having said that, it's not a simple thing under normal circumstances, if we could imagine, for a goal had done to be activated. After all, <coughs> pardon me. After all, uh, uh, it was an accident. And if one, if one can imagine what goes through the mind of a, of a prospective Goal Adam. Uh, this is killer, he's on the run. Uh, and what does he need? Close the door, please, please close the door. Everything shut down. He needs to go home. He needs to get his sword. He probably needs to polish it or to sharpen it. He needs to, uh, to, to ready himself for the, uh, for the mission at hand. And that takes time, and in the meanwhile, one can assume that the, goal, that the, that the accidental killer will be safe. Says Rebitzok of Elashen, that might be true in normal places. It's not true in Gilad. In Gilad, it's full of killers. There's killers everywhere. Most people are armed. They are, they are locked and loaded wherever they go, and they are ready to kill. All they need is to be told to be pointed in the right direction. And therefore, you see how different it is from the other explanations, that the Gemara says you need more Ari Miklat because you need closer proximity because the window of time is much less. It could be that it would take a, a normal Goal Hadam an hour or so to, to get ready. This person's ready within a Kader Chilas Pras. According to the most Machmer of Shittas, he's already on your trail. And therefore, you need more availability of Ari Mikla. Very interesting answer. But if we move um, just a little deeper into this Perik Lamed Hay, we find that at the end, it has additional verses with regards to being sure to administer punishment to, to someone who really did kill. And, and, and in the end, it talks about someone who, who kills on purpose, Pasuk Lamed Aleph, for example, Do not take a ransom for a murderer. What that means is don't let him ransom himself. Don't let him uh, pay, and pay off. He can't get away with it by, with, with a money payment. If he murdered someone, if he killed someone on purpose, monetary restitution will, will not do. Incidentally, and very importantly, this is the source, as far as the Rambam is concerned, in the Torah for the idea that ayin tachas ayin, an eye for an eye, when it comes to uh, injuries, actually translates into monetary payment. 
In other words, and the Rambam uh, famously says that when it says ein tachasayin and eye for an eye, what it means is this is what should happen. And you should know that that's what should happen. But it isn't what actually happens. And, and, and the source for this is our pasuk. Amazing. We're learning major, major uh, ideas from, from the end of uh, Parshas Masih here. But uh, the pasuk specifies you cannot take a kofir. You cannot take ransom money for someone who kills. That, that, that implies clearly, says Rambam, if he killed, you can't take a ransom. But if he did less than kill, which of course is a terrible thing, yeah, but it's injury and, and so on and so forth, you can take a ransom. And that's what's meant to happen. And therefore, ayin tachas ayin represents what should happen. And other Mepharshim add that if the person refuses to pay, maybe he really is liable. Of course, Shemayim will, will decide how, how to see to it. But it is a hanging punishment uh, at which he needs to ransom with money. What else does the Pasuk say? Pasuk Lamed Gimel. Interesting uh, expression. V'lo tachanifu es ha'aretz. Asher Lo tachanifu es ha'aretz. It's difficult to know even how to translate those words, uh, we're familiar with the concept of chanufa. Uh, chanufa is flattery. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, and we see Rashi very uh, pointedly does not explain lotachnifu as having anything to do with flattery. Rashi says lotachnifu means lotashiu, do not give uh, guilt or, 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 or liability to the land. Whatever that means. He takes the cue of Unculus. Lo tarshiu, do not, do not incur guilt for the land. What does that mean? Can, can the land be guilty? To add wrongdoing to the land? Difficult to know. But we are more familiar with the concept of Chanufa as flattery. But the question is, what is the possible understanding of the Pasuk in that light? That lo tachanifu means, what, don't flatter the land? How does bloodshedding got to do with flattering the land? Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, uh, as recorded in the Sefer Darash Moshe, which is one of the collections of his, uh, his thoughts on the Chumash and, and other matters, he explains that actually there is a certain form of manslaughter which is flattering the land. What does that mean? There are societies which do have a certain sense of uh, the terrible wrongdoing which is called killing. And they'll be very, they will enforce this, uh, perhaps even in, in ex- with extreme measures. Perhaps with capital punishment, it may be. If someone takes a life, then, uh, then his life will be taken. It's, it's very clear to them that that's a terrible thing, and they will respond with uh, very extreme uh, and harsh punishments. It could be. But at the same time, there is a certain type of taking a life that they might not necessarily consider to be that uh, grievous at all or perhaps not even consider it to be objectionable. Namely, what if you have a person who uh, is alive, but not productive in a way that we can see, and perhaps only needs to be taken care of, and is not uh, doing anything for the world, 
you may you could you can envisage and it's not a, it's not a matter of theory i mean there are societies like that where as far as they're concerned that is someone who their, their life is forfeit the very same people who would execute a murderer would would look the other way if it if it if it came to a situation like this but why because they only have a sense of valuing the productivity of life. They have no sense of valuing the sanctity of life. Every person who is alive is alive for a reason. And, and their life is no less uh, holy than anyone else who is doing all manner of things. Exactly the same. And therefore the Torah says, don't flatter the earth. Because to take such a position essentially is to flatter the earth. Because what are you saying to the earth? You're saying this person isn't doing anything for you and therefore it's less of an issue whether that person is still alive. That is called flattering the earth. Because you are giving the, the, the existence of the earth and the, the, the well-being of the earth more precedence than you are the well-being of people. So you're flattering the earth. And the Torah says, And this is, of course, uh, Ramosha Feinstein, who spent his uh, early years in communist Russia. One doesn't need to uh, speculate. But what does this tell us? It tells us that there are many areas where there are what you could call universal moral values, if there are still such things. And having said that, it's nowhere near what the Torah is talking about, even if they're talking about the same topic, even something like uh, bloodshed or, or any of these basic uh, things. But the shape of the issue and the quality of the issue when it comes to uh, a universal standard is nothing near what the Torah requires and the Torah demands and what the Torah uh, teaches us. And the same is true for many of these things. I, I was told uh, recently... Uh, there's a famous Gemara which says that uh, had the Torah not been given, uh, we could have actually learnt basic ideas just from looking at creation, looking at animals, etc. That we could have learnt the issue of stealing from an ant. Gezel minamala. It's a Gemara in Erevin and Daf Kuf. You could have learnt not to steal by observing an ant. Of course, I don't, um, most people do not observe ants uh, that closely or long enough or with enough attention to, to, to derive the moral message of don't steal. But the Gemara says that, uh, that you could. How so? And the Medrash follows up and says that whatever one ant has claimed for itself, none of the other ants will touch. Okay. It's a very... Uh, it's a very moral society, and, you, and if you observe it and you know what's happening, so you can learn so also you don't steal. Now, we tend to think that what the Gemara means to say is that without the Torah, you could learn all this from observation. Of course, with the Torah, it's now much more organized and it's much more explicit and clear, but it's, the, it's essentially the same thing. Says of Shlomo Zalman, it's not the same thing. Because... When you consider back again the example of an ant, it doesn't take anything that belongs to another ant, which is a very laudable trait. It avoids stealing from another ant. But none of the ants avoid stealing from people. I mean, they didn't, they didn't work to make this food. 
they will happily take from, from, from people. From where, but why? Because the difference between people and the fellow ant is that the, this is the fellow ant's kernel. If you take this, it doesn't have anything. But if you take this from people, they won't miss it. So it's a certain message about stealing, but it's limited. Because the moral of the story is, don't steal from someone who then won't have. But if they'll still have, they won't miss it. They, they'd never notice. This, for them, this is a tip. But for me, it's important. And that's okay. And that's why when the Torah is given, it isn't just ex explicating in a more organized way what you could have learned. It's raising the bar for all these things. Not stealing is not just about the other person not having. It's about it belongs to someone else, even if they're rich. And uh, that's a very worthwhile uh, concept to ponder on the, on the idea of Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, even for, for mitzvahs in such basic areas that we feel that we would already know them intuitively between our intuitive moral sense and what the Torah uh, demands in those areas, there is yet uh, a, good, a good distance. I think it's in place, especially as this is our last uh, session before um, before we break, and we are in the three weeks, which uh, until further notice are times where we focus on uh, matters of, uh, of, of Chorban, etc. There is a Pasuk in, in Eicha, which is very interesting. We don't normally think of Sukkim and Eicha as being interesting, but, but it is. I believe it's in the first Pasuk, it's the Mem. It says, Mimarom, from on high, Shalach Eish Ba'atzmosai Vayirdena. Hashem cast fire from on high into my bones and, and crushed them, which is a terrible thing to say, and, and, and Eicha is full of terrible things. But what's, what's noteworthy about this Pasuk is that it starts by saying, this took place mimarum, from on high. And the reason why that's interesting is because, I mean, Hashem is on high, which means whatever he sends you, he's going to be sending from on high. Everything is from on high that comes from him. So why is it emphasized that this fire came from on high? Apparently, <clears throat> what the Pasuk is, is indicating is that a fire that comes from on high should not destroy. A fire that comes from on high should not be destructive in nature. What does that mean? We know that fire does two things, one could say even opposing things. Uh, on the one hand, it gives great benefit, it... Uh, it, it illuminates and it provides warmth, but it also destroys. So it has the illumination, but also the consumption. That's fire as we know it. But the more elevated fire, that is Bamarom, has only the elevated qualities of illumination. None of the, none of the destructive qualities. And in fact, this idea was communicated to Moshe Rabbeinu the very first time that fire appears in the Torah, which is the Mare Hasneh. Moshe sees the burning bush, and it's, it's, it's burning, and it's not being consumed. And Moshe asks, why is this happening? This is, he's very, he was very um, piqued by this. Why is, the, why is the, the, the bush not being consumed? Now, what's interesting is, we never really hear the answer to that question. It just kind of moves on from that. Because yeah, Hashem says, I'm taking the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim. And Moshe's earlier question just get pushed aside. It seems that it was just there to draw him in, but is never really addressed. It's almost like karpas. What's this all about? Now we have your attention. Let's get down to business. But in fact, 
Hashem did answer his question. Because Hashem says, you need to take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. It's on holy ground. That is the answer to your question. If you want to know why the fire is not consuming the bush, the answer is because this is a holy place. And the fire is a holy fire and it illuminates. It burns but it doesn't consume. That's the answer. But that all of this now behooves us to, <coughs> to contemplate so then, so why is the fire that comes from on high, mimarom, why is it destructive? How does that work? The Gemara in Ksubis and Dafhei says a very interesting thing. It says, it's one of these things that only the Gemara could say. <coughs> it says that the, the deeds of tzaddikim are greater than the creation of heavens and earth. How so? Because the building of the Beis HaMikdash, it says, Mikdash Hashem Konanu Yadecha. You have two hands. That's, that's done through tzaddikim. But when it comes to heaven and earth, it just says one hand. It quotes the Pasuk in Mishle. The Pasuk says, Af yadi My hand established the earth. Vimini My right hand developed the heavens. So when the tzaddikim do something, that's greater because it's two hands. But when Hashem creates heaven and earth, that's less, because that's one hand. This is a very enigmatic statement. What does it mean? Especially as, as the Marsha raises the question, if you look at the Pasuk, the Pasuk says, my hand created the earth and my right hand created the heavens. That means that the first hand is the left hand. And one and one is two. Which means that they both have two hands. The Besamikdash is created, Konuni Yadecha. And heaven and earth, also the product of two hands. So then how is the Beis HaMikdash, made by Tzadikim, greater? But the answer is because the two hands that build the Beis HaMikdash are a pair. And the, the whole is more than the sum of the parts. In that Pasuk in, uh, about the creation of heaven and earth, each hand is alone. You've got one hand creating the earth, one hand creating the heavens, so to speak, but never the twain shall meet. So you have one and one, but that doesn't equal two. They're not a pair in that way. And that is the maila of the act of tzaddikim, that the two hands work together. What does all this mean? This is, it's just getting curiouser and curiouser. Where, where is this leading us? <coughs> the Maral explains. The, the concept of the right hand, the right and the left, is that the right, we always give primacy to, to an extent to, to the right, because the right represents more elevated things, and the left more mundane things. As we see in that Pasuk, it's the right hand that fashions the heavens, it's the left hand that fashions the earth. And because there is spirituality in the upper realms and physicality in the lower realms, and never the twain shall meet, the two remain distinct, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu has left it for people to bring the two together. To turn one and one into two. And, and what does that mean, practically? What it means is to, to imbue their physical existence with more elevated ideas, with more Ruchnius, which itself brings the Ruchnius realm closer, what we call the Divine Presence, the Hashra Sashchina. It's for this reason that the Beis HaMikdash is called a place of Yedidus. Ma Yedidus Mishkano Secha, says the Pasuk in Tehillim. And the concept of, of Yedidus 
of friendship, it runs through the Beis HaMikdash. You find that Shlomo HaMelech, who built the Beis HaMikdash, is known as Yedidya. Binyamin, on whose site the Beis HaMikdash is built, is called Yedid Hashem, Yishkon Levetachala. And the Beis HaMikdash itself is a place of Yedidus. Why is it called the Yedidus? Because, say, the Mephorshim, the word Yedid, is really a composite of the words Yad Yad, hand in hand. And the idea of Yedid is a person who's able to bring a harmony between the, the two Yads to make a Yedidus and to, and to join the two. The only entity that was created by Hashem's both hands is man. As the Pasuk says in Tehillim, Vatoshes Alai Kapecha. The man says, you put your hands on me, Kapecha, <coughs> both hands. Because man likewise comprises both realms. He has his Neshama from the higher realms, he has his Guf from the lower realms, and therefore it turns out that there are two entities that exist where this fusion between the right and the left can take place. <coughs> One is the location of the Beis HaMikdash, and the other is the being called man. And then you have this amazing synergy, whereby the two work together. Because the Beis HaMikdash is a place which allows the Divine Presence to, to rest more within man. For Asuli Mikdash, they'll make a Mikdash, Vishachanti Bisocham, Hashem says, I will reside more within them because if they treat the Beis HaMikdash as they should, that will lead to a greater fusion of Shekhinah within them. They also have these two hands. And likewise, if, if people act the way they should, then the Shekhinah resides in the Beis HaMikdash. But if they don't, if they, if they are not living up to the standards of the Torah, to put it mildly. So what happens? What happens is the, the union between the Yad Yad, between the Hashem and the upper realms and us and the lower realms, it gets loosened. And that is the meaning of the Pasuk and Eicha, which says, Heshiv Achor Yemino. Hashem drew his right hand back. Heshiv Achor Yemino. In other words, the Yemin represents all of Hashem's heavenly input into this physical location. But when people were not treating it as they should and were not living as they should, so Hashem's right hand withdrew. But not only did it withdraw, Heshiv Achor Yemino. The Medra says, Heshiv Achor means he turns it backwards. He turned the right hand backwards. And when you turn a right hand backwards, it becomes another left hand. And what that means is that all, even the spiritual input that one would be expecting from on high took on lower qualities. And that is what is represented by the idea that fire now that came from on high would destroy and not just illuminate. That means that the, that the, the Jewish people had reached a stage where they had turned spiritual qualities into, into other physical qualities. And there were two left hands now. So that the fire that comes down is not the, it's not the type of fire that illuminates. It's not the type of fire you'd expect from on high because it actually consumes as well. And the result was the Chorban that would happen. And I think the reason, as much as it's, uh, aspects of this idea are quite esoteric and certainly need much uh, contemplation, but the, the basic idea is that within us also there are two types of fire. It's very interesting that, and I think it's really a sign of, uh, or a symptom of this whole idea, is that people are, nowadays are often known as consumers, which 
when you think about it, to, to identify a person by that quality is basically saying, that's what he does. That's what he does. He consumes. Of course, we're physical beings. We need to consume. But there, there's a lot more consumers than there are illuminators. That's for sure. And if the, if the destruction began by prizing apart those two concepts, then surely a decisive step of Geula begins by bringing them back together. And what that means practically is by bringing back a bit of the, of the more elevated uh, fire into things that we do, to stop just being consumers, to start being illuminators. And what that means is to illuminate the things that we do, the mitzvahs that we do, the Torah learning that we do, the davening that we do, the relationships that we have. These are things that can be done by rote, in a charev way, which is where Churban comes from, or they can be done with this, with this more elevated fire that everyone has with, within them. It's very interesting that uh, we say in the Nachim prayer, on Mincha, on Tisha B'Av, we say, Ki you set fire to, 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 to Yerushalayim. You, you, you destroyed it with fire, but you will rebuild it with fire. It was destroyed with fire, it will be rebuilt with fire. But since when does fire rebuild? Well, the answer is, there is a type of fire that can rebuild. But who provides that fire? We do. And this, I think, is a very meaningful uh, message. It can, if, it can express itself in so many ways. But uh, it, the, the more one thinks, the more ways it can be applied. But just to put that that more elevated fire back into the things that we do, surely that's a, that, that is a decisive step towards the Geula, and we look forward to witnessing, and should be Bimheria, Biyameinu, Hashem's rebuilding of Yishalayim with fire. Uh, we should have Basuras Tovos, Bikarov. All the very best. Okay. Just uh, to mention again, while, while 